Kia ora, and O'Brien tuku ingoa, he kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Past and Present, supported by Heartland Bank. Sociologist Joanna Kidman and historian Vincent O'Malley make a formidable team as partners in life and in scholarship. They both contributed to the recently published Fragments from a Contested Past, Remembrance, Denial and New Zealand History, and co-lead the Marsden Fund project Ke Taonga Te Wareware, Remembering and Forgetting Difficult Histories in Aotearoa New Zealand, a three-year study into how the 19th century New Zealand wars have shaped memory, identity and history. O'Malley is a founding partner of History Works and the author of the 2022 Ockham New Zealand Awards general non-fiction winner, Voices from the New Zealand Wars, He Reo no Ngā Pākanga o Aotearoa. Kidman is a professor of sociology with a particular interest in youth movements and higher education. They speak with Dale Husband about their writing, passions and collaborations. My name's Dale, and thanks very much for coming along to the Auckland Writers' Festival. It's a real privilege to be here and to, uh, to talk about this rich catalogue that these two wonderful authors have been able to contribute to our growth as a nation. Uh, I'm from Horaki and Tainui, so it has some resonance with me, and I want to thank you for your interest as we try and chart a way forward for those who will follow in our footsteps in this wonderful land that we call home. I'd like to acknowledge too all of the uh, other authors, speakers, but mostly you for your interest in our literary work in this country. And uh, it's a real pleasure for me to facilitate our conversation today. I'm actually filling in for Chris Rukaida, who was meant to emcee this particular session, but Chris has had an ear infection and uh, couldn't travel from Wellington. So a uh, warm welcome to you, one and all. Well, uh, this session is called Past and Present, and it's Kidman and O'Malley, as you can see behind me. So we're joined by sociologist Joanna Kidman, who's from Manipoto and Ngati Raukawa, and historian um, Vincent O'Malley, and together they make a very formidable team. Uh, they're partners in both life and in scholarship, but both contributed to the recently published fragments from a contested past, Remembrance, Denial, and New Zealand History and they co-lead the Marsden Fund project Te Taonga Te Wareware, Remembering and Forgetting Difficult Histories in Aotearoa New Zealand. So that's a three-year study into how the 19th century New Zealand wars have shaped our memory, our identity, and our history. So Vincent O'Malley is a founding partner of History Works, the author of the 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards general non-fiction winner, Voices from the New Zealand Wars, and Joanna Kidman is a professor of sociology with a particular interest in youth movements and higher education. And it's with that backdrop that I ask you to please welcome them to the Auckland Writers Festival. This was a really interesting read. I hope some of you have had the pleasure of delving into it. And as I say, both these people have uh, had a long history of putting together information so that we can understand more clearly our New Zealand history. 
was particularly touched by the way that they had researched the information that's gathered in this book, which comes from uh, Bridget Williams' books. It's an easy read of 182 pages, and it really is uh, accessible to all who are interested in the reasons why we sometimes have um, a tendency to forget important parts of our history. We appear to be on the cusp of change there as we witness New Zealand history being taught in our schools, more Māori interwoven with everyday life, including in our school curriculums. So there's much to be uh, confident about as we push forward, but also a lot that needs to be remembered because many New Zealanders, well, you don't know what you don't know. So I thank these two in advance for putting scholarly work in that is readable, enjoyable, and very much adds to our understanding of the interesting uh, history of our land. Um, sorry. Uh, Vincent, just because it's a Māori way, mate, can we start by uh, finding out a little bit about you, what makes you tick, where you grew up, and how come you got so interested in New Zealand's history for a start, please, Vincent? Sure. Uh, tēnā koutou it's, it's great to, to be here today to talk with you. As we said before, we're huge fans of all the work that you do for Watea, for Itangta, and so on. Uh, so for me, um, New Zealand history was kind of an unexpected thing. Um, I grew up in a big working-class Irish Catholic household in Christchurch, the ninth of nine kids. Uh, my father worked at Addington Railway workshops building trains when we still did, did that in this country. Um, and my mother was a cleaner. That, that was my first job at the age of 15, and she was actually my boss, and we started in the history department at the University of Canterbury. Uh, so <laughs> it was a good way to work out who the... Um, the, the nice people were that the, the, the professors who treated the cleaners with decency. I remember them years later when I went back as a student. And across to you, Joanna, can you tell us a little about uh, yourself, your whānau, and, and your interest in sociology, differing somewhat from history, but what a dynamic duo are you, mate? Tell us a little more about yourself, please, Joanna. Um, so for, for me, I am Ngāti Maniapoto and Ngāti Reikawa. Um, I'm the daughter of uh, a, a Māori father and a Pākehā mother. And um, we, I was born in Rotorua uh, and we grew up moving back and forth um, between Ngāti Whakaui Marae, um, who hosted us and who were extraordinarily generous to us in the 1960s. Um, but I was a, there, there weren't places for people like me, for, for children growing up with Māori, Māori parent and a Pākehā parent. And so there was a kind of uh, a wordlessness around aspects of, of, of my childhood. When I was at the Marae, it felt at home, I felt wonderful, I felt cared for. And then we'd get in the car and we'd drive around the lake to the Pākehā neighbourhood where, where we lived and that stuff would fall away and I'd have to sort of become somebody else again. So for me, um, my growing up was, was a kind of, um, a sense sometimes of being kind of invisible. And I think probably that carried through to my adult years. As a child, I, I thought one of, if I had a super fat power, I would want to be, have the power of invisibility. And so what I used to do as a child, I didn't sleep very well. I was one of those children who, you know, parents just, dr drives your parents crazy, never slept. 
I used to wander at night, and this was the 1960s, so it was absolutely safe to be wandering around the neighborhood in the middle of the night. My parents never knew I would wait until the household was asleep, and then I'd get up and I'd start wandering around my neighborhood. And I'd sort of stop and I'd look in through neighbors' windows. This sounds so creepy when I'm saying it now, but you know, when, you, when you're three years old, it's, it's kind of, it's not creepy. And I learned a lot of stuff just by watching, and, and in a way it was kind of almost like becoming invisible, but acquiring knowledge as I was doing it. And as an adult, what I found is this is what sociologists do too. We don't stare in through people's bedroom windows, we really don't. But we do kind of observe and watch and think about the world and take note as, as we're walking through the world. And in lots of ways, sociology is the art of becoming invisible. So I feel like I learned that quite early on when I was a child. Thanks, Joanna. These guys had an interesting experience uh, where the history and the sociology combined. You might touch on that for a moment, please, Vincent, and it sort of illustrates why when we look at the history and the monuments and lack of recognition for, uh, for Māori efforts in the skirmishes of yesteryear, why it's important that this book draws some attention to our abilities if we take the time to listen and to, uh, and to question uh, why we can grow from it. But um, you'd been down looking at battlefields and hadn't collaborated so much and um, uh, took your sweetheart along and <laughs> hey presto, dynamic duo born. Tell us about that one. Yeah, well, you know, we, we've been married for coming up 20, 20 years next March and for a long time we thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to collaborate on something? And it's like, well, she's a sociologist, I'm a historian. What, what can we work on together? And um, then February 2015, I think it was, we were going to, um, one of Joanna's nephews was getting married in the Waikato. And I happened to be writing my big book on the Waikato War then, Great War for New Zealand, and um, wanted to go and photograph and visit the various sites. And so we spent three or four days <laughs> on our way to a wedding, traveling the Great South Road, visiting all of these various sites. And um, you know, I'd been to some of them before, but not all of them. And, you know, some of the sites, I was just amazed at how neglected they were and how often they were marked by roads run through the middle of them, like um, almost obliterating the physical remnants of what took place at these sites. And we, we went away and thought, you know, what's, what's, what was this all about? What's going on here? Why are, we, uh, why are we trying to almost literally bury this history that we have in this country? Um, and then later, um, that year, of course, the Otterhonga College petition was presented to Parliament, and um, we, well, Joanna downloaded all of the submissions that were made on the petition, and we started analysing them, and then we, we, we kind of discovered that we did have interesting things to say about that together, and that kind of led to our bigger uh, Marsden Fund project about remembering and forgetting the New Zealand Wars, um, and that was us, and so, yeah, it's been amazing and, and uh, uh, really fantastic to work together too. So he's a historian, normally he's into his books, you know, the, 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 the dusty old books of yesteryear head down. And Joanna arrives with a different style. Uh, Vincent was saying he'd normally take a picture of the monument, yeah? But Joanna's there with her tape recorder and she's sussing out the clouds, she's listening to the birds' song, she's writing in her book, uh, getting the feel, the vibe, the wairua of the site. So this collaborative approach with the history perspective and the sociologist's perspective is illustrated beautifully 
in this book, uh, which we'll fire into now. When I read it, I, I was touched by some of the themes it touched on. And uh, the first part was the 250 celebration, or what was expected to be our nation's celebration of Cook's arrival down in Turanganuiakiwa, which he sadly called Poverty Bay, and it sort of had to live with that handle for, for all of that time. But in that piece, and we haven't got time to go through it completely, but I hope that by Joanne's reference, it might illustrate some parts of it that might inspire you to pick up the book and have a read. So we're on the beach in Gisborne, and the reenactment of Cook's arrival was due, and there were many Māori who felt aggrieved because it wasn't smooth sailing when that uh, endeavour arrived, and it hasn't been smooth sailing for our people ever since, I might add, but uh, there were some who felt very uncomfortable about it. And one piece that touched me quite uh, vividly when I read that, uh, uh, that piece, beautifully crafted and written, Joanna, thank you, and um, was at one stage there was wailing from our wahine Māori. We're familiar with it. It, it brings tears to my eyes whenever I hear it, this, this wailing sound. And Joanna, even though she had witnessed and, and um, you know, catalogued the feeling, the emotion of that particular morning, you were drawn into that as well. Can you take us there and, and talk about those emotional feelings and why you felt it important it was included in, uh, in your assessment of that day? Yeah, the Tuya 250 commemorations were, they, they were the source of a lot of mamai. For, for, some, for some iwi, it was the, the replica arriving in their waters was not, not welcome. And because this project that Vincent and I are doing is about how we remember the past, how, how we remember in very different ways, we wanted to go and be there for the arrival of, of the replica um, ship to, to see how that played out in real time with real people. So we arrived in um, Gisborne and, and in the morning we, we went to Waikanae Beach and we saw that there were groups of Pākehā families who were gathering together, they had their picnic baskets and they were putting out their deck chairs and they were waiting for the arrival of, of the replica ship of the Endeavour. And so it was kind of a day out, it was, it was something that was exciting, it was kind of the spectacle of, of this, this tall ship coming into the harbours. Um, and so we walked past these, these families and I was supposed to be meeting some people who, who were protesting um, their, their arrival, and I couldn't quite see where they were. And so I saw a group of, of Māori who were carrying placards, and I thought, right, okay, I'll follow them because they'll be going to, to the area where the protests are. As I went towards them, uh, uh, there, were, there was a group of, of young, very beautiful-looking young children who started screaming racial abuse at, um, at this group as they walked past. And so that was the first intimation that I got that there were these tensions in, in the area that we were going into. For some people, this occasion was exciting. It was, it was something to, it was a day out. But for others, it was a source of grief and the memories that were brought up about the arrival of Cook on those shores were really difficult for, for Māori in that area. So we followed um, the group around, and the, the part that you're talking about, Dale, um, as the ship started moving towards, there, there, 
there was a warship that had, that had arrived just before that, and that sort of gave me a sense of dread that, you know, we're, we're talking about war. This is, you know, very confusing here. But as the replica ship came in, Tanu Māori stood in front, of, um, in front of the woman and started burning the Union Jack and started calling, you know, Hairiati, leave, we don't want you here. And I was standing with a group of Māori women and as the, I mean, I get emotional talking about it now, as the, as the ship, as the endeavour sailed towards us, the women started wailing. Now, as a sociologist, I was there with my voice recorder and our team was there and we were wandering around, we were um, speaking into our voice recorders about what we were seeing, what we were hearing and um, what, we, what we were feeling. But as the woman started to wail, we got caught into the, the absolute anguish of the memories of the original arrival of the endeavour. And so... I looked over towards my team who was standing some way away from me and there's a Māori woman and their voice recorders were by their side and there were tears running down their faces and I heard this kind of shout, this, this howl of anguish and I realised that it was coming from me. So in that moment I went from being an outsider and observer of these, these moments to feeling all the pain and rage of my own whānau who'd got lost in the tides of those histories um, through the Waikato, not through that particular area. So it was an extraordinarily emotional experience for all of us. And it's, um, it was a, a powerful description. Thanks for sharing it with us again today, Joanna. Um, you've looked at a lot of battle sites, Vincent. And and I live in Otahuhu, where there's a monument to Marmaduke Nixon, um, and I feel uncomfortable when I walk past it because of the history of, uh, of what happened down at Rangialfia. But perhaps you could, uh, just, just to set the stage, please, uh, Vincent, why so few monuments that represent the Māori loss during the wars and, um, and, you know, perhaps that you could morph that into what we can learn from these sites, these battlefield sites. It's interesting that we chronicle a lot of our history in the, um, uh, the pakango, the, the skirmishes, the wars. But uh, even so, it, it's a well-utilised uh, tool in, uh, in uh, history collation. So why, few, why so few... Um, illustrations of the Tahamari side of this of these battles please Vincent. Yeah well that's I mean we, we talk with our project about one of the things we wanted to do is document the silences and what's missing and the Nixon monument is a good example of that because um, it, it commemorates Marmaduke Nixon who was gravely wounded in the attack on Rangiafia in February 1864 um, and there's no reference at all to the victims of that attack on the settlement of Rangiafia now, for those of you who don't know, Rangiafia um, was a settlement in the Waikato that was declared a sanctuary for women, children, and elderly men, non-combatants, basically. And, and a message was passed to the British during the invasion of Waikato um, because um, at, at the Battle of Rangiriri in November 1863, there'd been complaints that women and children were brought into the pa, and, and Gray actually wrote to the King Tanga and said, look, send them somewhere else, send them to a place of safety. So that the, the, they eventually, they, they, via Bishop Selwyn, they said, 
Rangiafia we nominate as, a, as our place of safety for our non-combatants. So the last thing they expected was for um, those women, children and old men to be attacked at that place. The men of fighting age were waiting at Patarangi for an attack on them that never came. Instead, they, they attacked their families. And Rangiafia wasn't a part, it was an open, undefended village, essentially. Um, and people were, were talked to death and fari there and so on. And, and you go to the Nixon Monument, none of that is recorded there. There's a complete silence about the victims of the attack on Rangiafia. And the, for Tainui, the, those killed at Rangiafia were not... Um, were not killed in warfare, they were murdered because they were non-combatants, they weren't fighting and they were supposed to be safe and they weren't. Um, now I'm getting emotional but, <laughs> and that's one thing that happened to me through our project is, you know, in, um, earlier I sort of, um, as a historian you need to maintain a certain distance from that but the more you engage with these sites in the way that Joanna's talking about, the more that they, they start to affect you. But so, you know, Rangiafia and the Nixon Monument, that's one example but all over the country, there are these silences around the Māori um, that they fought against. Just up the road from here, the Simon Street Monument um, it, it was erected in 1920 by the Victoria League um, to those who fought on the Crown side, including Māori who fought on the Crown side, but the, again, there's no mention of those they fought against. And the monument is part of this. Most of these monuments were erected either in the 19th century or the early 20th century and they're monuments to imperialism and colonisation. And to the extent that they talk about the, these wars, they engage in this myth-making around these conflicts as chivalrous and noble affairs. And so the other silences are, are around the atrocities that were committed in these conflicts. They're just not mentioned. So, I mean, these monuments... Um, tell us more about the, the mindset of Pākehā at the time that they were erected uh, than about what actually took place during these wars. They really don't tell us much about the wars at, at all. Well, these are monuments, monuments to war. And so you've got to question their purpose. Um, what can we learn? How can we grow uh, as a nation, Māori, non-Māori, new migrants, by understanding more clearly the realities of what occurred? I mean, f for us as Māori, it's... It, massively hurtful when we look at the land loss subsequently, the confiscation, the richest pastoral land in the country no longer accessible to us, the treaty regime, which has a two cents in the dollar settlement program that we've lived with in the hope to charter a better way forward for all of us. But for, for our guys gathered here today, I mean, how can their lives improve by understanding more clearly the realities of what occurred, Vincent? Well, for one thing, I'd say, as a nation, how can we know where we're going if we don't know where we've come from? And we need to, for, for so long, Pākehā have turned their backs on, on the real history of this country and engaged in this myth-making, you know, the greatest race relations in the world and so on. And that was not a history that accorded with the Māori experience at all. So there's this disjunction between how Māori remember these events, Cook, the New Zealand Wars, the Native Land Court, you name it, a whole series of events. Uh, and, and on the other hand, Pākehās patting themselves on the back and saying, weren't we great? You know, wonderful humanitarian, um, you know, and so th th there's this, you know, the thing that Joanna and I have been talking about is, is that really as a nation we need to take ownership of our history warts and all. I think Rahui Papa said, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. We need to, 
we need to be upfront and honest about that history. And that's not about, I think, um, finger pointing or making f anybody feel guilty or ashamed about the actions of their ancestors. It's just about saying that we are finally mature enough as a nation to say this is part of our history. And learning that history and engaging with that history, I think, is a basis for reconciliation, which is grounded in genuine dialogue and understanding, mutual understanding. Um, So it, it's, it's really about having the conversations about our past, difficult though they may be. And once we do that, lots of, lots of wonderful things can come out of that. Um, yeah, I'm going to uh, uh, take issue with that. It wasn't Rahui Papa who said that, mate. It was Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Rahui was um, obviously plagiarising Clint Eastwood. Uh, uh, Joanna, the book. I mean, hey, thanks for that. It's encouraging because you know, if we know more, we can move together more purposefully and uh, in more harmony, I'd hope. Um, so, so the book, I've jumped a few questions, but we'll go back to some other points. Um, you put the book out there. What are you hoping that it will, will do by knowing more clearly some of the realities of, uh, of our history? Joanna? Well, as a sociologist, one of the... Um, areas of, of research that has been really important is, for me has been working with rangatahi Māori. Um, and I have done research with, with young people who are living way out on the edges of society and who often, for all sorts of reasons, have felt really disconnected. And one of the things that I found in, in the research that I've been doing prior to this was that for a lot of young Māori, for a lot of young Pacific, for a lot of migrant children, um, there's just not a language, there's a sense, they know that when, when things, there's something wrong, they get it, they, but they don't have a language to talk about what's really going on for them. We're not allowed to use the word racism because, you know, in a lot of situations, because it does offend people. They don't like being called racist. So there's no, there's, there are no spaces for dialogue um, to have those really difficult conversations in ways that are mana enhancing for everyone. And so what I hope for from this project that we've been working on with our team is that we open up some of those spaces where we can have the conversations and they will be hard, they're not easy conversations to have. But I think that they, what they do is they give us back all our ancestors to us. Um, for our tupuna and for pahia, those, those who fought on the crown side, it gives them back to us, we can reclaim them. And I think, um, you know, one of the big things for this project for me has been um, to ask, you know, as a nation, how do we mourn together? How do we mourn the, the past? And how do we heal together? And I guess for me, one of the big questions that I ask myself as we're going through these battle sites and we're going to these places where there's been mass violence has taken place. The question that I'm asking myself is I'm, I'm sitting with the tūpuna who, who fell in those places. How do we forgive? How do we begin again? We're all part of the healing. By your interest in this book, in this work, we're all part of the healing. You know, and for us who have shared Bala, a beautiful Pākehā whānau, proudest punch of them and 
them wanting to travel here to a new land to give better opportunities to their kids. A, a beautiful old man who just died earlier this year, Parker. So the conflicts that we witness on the battlefield and the results of them are internalised by many of us who call uh, Aotearoa New Zealand home. And it's, it's not that we want to point the finger at Pākehā because most people in this room who are, are Pākehā are good people by virtue of the fact that you're interested in understanding this more clearly. But there have been well-documented imperialistic colonising processes that have shaped our land. We, it, it's not to attribute blame to Pākehā. That would be unfair, although there still remains the ignorant, bigoted, racist and unenlightened <laughs> among, among us as well. And um, uh, that was evident by a piece that came out trying to doubt all that you'd put together about the alfair and uh, we won't linger on it too long. But there are some uncontactable people and now the digital technologies have allowed them to spread dis and misinformation. And um, I haven't heard of the publishing house. Was it Toss? Tross. Dross? Tross. Oh, Tross. Dr okay. Dross is appropriate, but yeah, okay. Tross. <laughs> but, uh, and, and they, this was a, a counter-message, counter-information, saying Lung Alpha never existed, that, you know, it's all sponsored by Māori who want to get a bit more in their treaty settlements. And that sort of sentiment, sadly, can, uh, can ping around our land. And some quick thoughts on that, please. I don't want to dwell too much, because it's quite the negative side of the mucking that you've been involved in, uh, Vincent. Yeah, well, as you say, there's always going to be a small segment of the population that are unreachable, and there's really no point in engaging with them and wasting your energy trying trying to, to speak to them. There's a bigger group, I think, who are open to hearing this information, especially, um, you know, so many of us didn't learn any New Zealand history at school, and so for a lot of people, this is the first time they're hearing these stories. And um, that's why it's really important that... Um, Thus, year in not just in the school curriculum, but for adults who didn't learn that history, we need to catch up. We need to engage with that history in all, all sorts of ways. Whether that's apps that help us define these sites, because so many of them are very, very difficult to find. Often they're not even signposted. It's still, even today, uh, and so finding the sites, providing resources like Mihi Falls, wonderful New Zealand Wars documentaries. Uh, you know, that, that's why I spend my spare time writing books and so on, and, and trying to engage people who are open to learning about this history because, as I say, so many people didn't have the opportunity. But for those who um, are beyond help, um, th there's, there's really no point in engaging in debate with them. Um, you know, the denialists in general, they, they just want to waste your energy, they suck all the energy out of you and you spend your time on them instead of engaging with people who are open to, to learning this history, I think. Let's turn our attention to Kahal uh, Te Rangatahi, the idea of it's time for our young to take up the, uh, the challenge, even though, as uh, Tommy there says, you know, it's time for a new net, but it's us old guys who cast it. But um, and, uh, this is paying tribute to young people from Otorohanga College. And I'll set the stage by saying that they went to Rangiafa and, uh, and Orako, not far from each other. And they were exposed to the history by a wonderful old kaumatua from down Tainui Ways called Tom Roar, who uh, features prominently in this book too, in the latter parts of it, and Tom asked for them to be still, to listen carefully and to, to hear the wind and to imagine, and these young people just went away back to school and thought, oh, I never knew all of that, how come I didn't know any of that? 
I'll ask you to take the ball now and uh, take us for a run with that idea, please, Joanna, because it resulted in significant change and an example how our young people can change and chart the way forward for our tomorrow. Uh, the, the young people, just a huge shout out to the young people of Otarahanga College. They um, were taken to, to the sites around where they lived in, in um, King Country, around the Waikato, as part of a school trip. And they were taken onto these, into these spaces by the descendants of those who, um, of those who, who had fallen in those spaces. And so they started to hear these stories. So these were young people in, in a fairly rural area um, hearing these stories of place, their place, for the very first time. And they were astounded. It's like, well, history has always been, you know, treated as if it's something that happens overseas to other people. But the school trip, what it did was it took them to the places and they could see that big history was happening in their own backyards. And that because it was happening in their own backyards where they lived, they were part of those histories. So they became connected to that flow of, of the past. And so that was an extraordinarily powerful experience for them. And they came back and they couldn't let it go. And so they put together the petition, which we, we you know, drew huge public attention, and they got 13,000 signatures. Um, they brought the petition to Parliament, uh, and there was huge resistance from many, including from the Ministry of Education. What they were asking for was a day of remembrance for the New Zealand wars, but also for New Zealand history to be taught as a compulsory subject in New Zealand schools, because they wanted for all young people in New Zealand that moment of recognition to see themselves as part of history, not separate from it. Um, so there was, there was, uh, you know, there was huge support for them. There were pockets of hostility, but you know, they made history with that. We do have you know, a national day of remembrance set aside for the wars. And it is, the new curriculum is about to be rolled out in New Zealand schools in, from the beginning of next year. And no one is imagining that it's going to be easy. It is going to be really tough in some areas. In some areas, there is huge resistance to these stories being told. But I think if, if we can come to a place where young people just have that moment of recognition that this, this history, this is us, this is where we belong, this is where we can contribute, and if we know our history, we get to change what happens next. And that's, that's so shout out to, to the Otarahanga College young people. We're on the verge of, of um, breaking this intergenerational cycle of historical ignorance and historical illiteracy, and that's going to be hugely transformative in the longer term. You can't understand the present without knowing the historical context. And you know, things today like Māori um, socioeconomic statistics make no sense if you don't know that in the 1840s and 1850s, for example, Māori were the leading drivers of the New Zealand economy. And all of that is, is taken away almost literally overnight during the invasion of Waikato and elsewhere in the 1860s. That economy is destroyed. And that's not something that you recover from lightly or easily. You know, it's, it, it persists to this day. So 
the history we're talking about, it's not ancient history, we live with it in the present. It, it, it influences all of our lives every day. And even here in Auckland, there, there are so many sites that, that um, you, you can visit a stone's throw from here where you can see these, these sites. Um, old government house, now the University of Auckland staff common room is where Gray and his ministers plotted the invasion of Waikato, for example. Just up the road from the year, up the road from there, you can see the remnants of um, Albert Barracks in, on the university campus with the um, with the loopholes to fire muskets through uh, that, that are still there. So, you know, there are physical remnants of these sites all over the place, and th this history uh, is one that we've kind of it's been all around us, but we've ignored it for so long. Pakeha, that is, I mean, but in terms of ignoring the history. Um, I work in the media, Maori media, proudly have done for some decades, and it's to counteract the types of rhetoric, the reading, the observations uh, that have been skewered about our people for so long. And the media has such a strong influence on how we feel about ourselves, the self-esteem, the confidence we carry into our everyday lives. If you're constantly given a stereotype of negativity in, in what you uh, read, hear or see about yourself, then how can we grow? So there's a push now to bring out the more real stories that might illustrate while, why our people, sadly, are at the bottom of the social indicators, whether that's health or education, income, housing, etc. And it's really important that um, more of us understand the colonial history, because there is the root cause, loss of land, loss of culture, loss of identity, loss of real, that really was the base from where we are trying to build. And again, it's not finger-pointing. It's just so that we know more clearly why this might be the case. And our Indigenous people, our First Nations people here in this country, uh, the statistics are mirrored by First Nations people across the world. Well, we might be talking here about um, battle sites and the lack of recognition for them. There's a, a wider issue at play, and that's for us to get a much more clearer understanding of who we are uh, as a people. Can I talk about the writing style too, because both of you guys have gone out of your way to make it sort of readable, palatable, not as stiff and formal perhaps as what some of your earlier writing might have been, Mr <laughs> O'Malley. Oh, thank you for that. Um, well, we, we always said at the outset with, with this that um, we described it as Itangata style, because Itangata, you know, that you're heavily involved in, produces... Um, works each, each Sunday that, that is serious and important, but it's written in an, in an engaging and accessible way. And if you want the general public to, to buy into this history, it needs to be written in a format that is, that is open and accessible and is not um, full of academic jargonese and, and, and theory and so on. So one of the things we try to do with this is really to craft narratives. It's about storytelling, I think and drawing the reader in. And, and um, one of the things with this as well is like, and Joanna can, can speak to this with the, the, the notes from the field and the ethnographic stuff, but we wanted to bring that through the work as well. What we, what we were hoping to do was to, to expose the, the methods that we use to, get, to hear these stories and also to tell these stories. So in the book we talk about how in a way we're inviting the reader to look over our shoulder as, we, as we're constructing these, these narratives. And we wanted to do it in a way that um, I guess, you know, I, I've 
I'm a very institutionalised person in that I've worked in, inside a university for over 30, nearly 40 years. And it's very easy as an academic to write for a very small and quite select audience of other academics. Um, but I don't think transformation and change necessarily comes from those spaces. So I think that it's incumbent on us if we're hearing the stories of people's lives, and some of these are, are incredibly powerful and moving stories, then it is incumbent on us to become storytellers in that process and to reach out to a much wider audience where I think hopefully that transformation and that change is, is going to take place. So we try to reflect that in, in our written style. And let's, let's celebrate words because they're at the basis of everything, aren't they? Oops, sorry. Um, we're, we're seeing a, a huge explosion in, in the Māori creative sector and in wider New Zealand sector through the arts, through filmmaking, uh, through music all stems from the word. And so, um, Vincent O'Malley, your life has been full of words for so long now. And let's also um, pay tribute to this very accessible format the BWB has, uh, so that they're not expensive books. They're, they're, they're um, as I say, easy to read, easy to handle. And at a time when so many of us, um, particularly parents, are wondering whether the digital style of information grabbing from our young people, uh, whether they're getting the joy of a book, uh, uh, the tactile experience of turning pages. Um, let's celebrate words for a moment and how you feel about their ability through books, through reading, to affect societal change. Oh, I think it's really important. And um, I mean, th th the idea of the BWB text is that, you know, they are very cheap. You can buy the you can buy the ebook for five dollars, for the entire you know uh, the whole series. Uh, many of them are available in public libraries through various databases and so on. But with a lot of the, the other books that they produce as well, um, they produce very high quality productions. And, and there the illustrations are important as well. I think like with the Great War for New Zealand, it's it's you know besides the text, it's a it's a beautiful a beautiful book. The production values are, are, are incredible, and the I think that's, that's really important because if, you, if you're going to spend 80 bucks for a book, um, you, you want something high quality, and that's that's really important as well. I think because the the visual narrative is also important to that, and that that's why um, with our project um, w we've spent a lot of time going to the sites, documenting them in various ways, including photographs and so on. But one of the other things we we, we started doing was um, we set up a YouTube channel and we just sort of take two or three minute videos at each of these sites. And neither of us have any technical skills. No, so none none whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it really, again, it, it's just a snippet of those sites. And, um, you, you know, when we go to them, it's kind of like, um, you know, marking that history that, that of what took place at them. And, and some of these sites, um, you know, we talk about battlefields, but some of them, there's nothing there. It's like a paddock and a farm. Like we were talking the other day about um, one place we went to, Hanley's Woolshed um, in Taranaki, where um, the Kaiwi cavalry led by John Bryce attacked a group of um, Māori children who were out hunting pigs, and at least two of the children were um, killed in, in quite brutal fashion. And um, so there we were on this shingle road in the middle of nowhere, staring out, out of a lake on, on a on private land on a farm paddock where, where these 
X took place. And there's nothing there to, monument, to, to mark this, no monuments, no, no information panels. The, the only thing that marked that history was that the closest town was named after the, the man who killed these children until earlier this year. And the, the town was called Maxwell. It's finally changed now. Only took 150 years. But, you know, that's, that's wonderful that, that finally that has, that has changed. And I think, too, uh, you know, that going to those spaces where these huge, these horrific, catastrophic, world-changing events have happened, often there is literally nothing there. So Vincent and I have spent hours driving up and down country roads in the middle of nowhere going, where is, where is the site, where is the site? And we've also, so, you know, we've, we've found these sites, you know, on the sides of mountains and, and forests. Um, we've found them on city roads, like in Auckland, um, places where there are trucks whizzing back and forth. Um, and and these, are, these are places where big things have happened. And often we've had to learn how to read the land. So every battle has got a story, and every battlefield carries the story of the violence that has taken place. So we had to learn how to read the, the whenua itself. So in some of those places, you'd see big dips in the earth and you'd sort of follow them. So we learned to read them. These were the saps, these were the rifle pits. And over here, this is, this is um, these furrows. The, this is where the underground tunnels beyond the ramparts were, were built. And so we learned to, the, the, the land carries the scars of battle. And often we were able to read what the battle, the layout of those battles as they took place were, because they remain in the earth now. But there's not necessarily any signage um, for it. And in some cases, the sites are really badly, really, really badly neglected. Orako might be an example we could share. Um, you know, a significant battle, sometimes uh, referred to as Louis's last stand. And um, am I right to recall that? Um, they put a picnic table beside a monument when, in fact, it was really more an urupa uh, and, and, you know, just ill treatment of the rich history uh, of Tangata Whenua, mm. uh, who were caught up in these sad uh, moments. Yeah, um, yeah, so at Arako, um one of the many, many sites where a road runs through the, the middle of the pa although some archaeologists have now raised question marks about, around that and suggested the, the, the actual par site may have been 80 metres away. They're still debating that point. But, um, yeah, so the picnic table was erected there for the centenary of the battle in 1964 that shows, you know, e even that recently, that there was a complete lack of understanding that this was a wahi tapu, it was an urupa, it was inappropriate for, for people to eat at that site. Um, and it was only... Um, removed shortly before the sesquicentenary in 2014. So it was, it was there right up until then. Um, and, you know, you, you find that all over the country with the, you know, the desecration of these sites, really. Uh, Gate Par and Tauranga is another example. Not only does a road run through the middle of it, but it's, na it's named Cameron Road after the commander of British forces in New Zealand. So, and, and we see that as well in places like Kihi Kihi. Every, every second street is named after um, one of the one of the officers or politicians responsible for the invasion and the, and the disposition of Māori, and that that town is still has a large Māori population. So these are kind of daily reminders of that that painful history in a way. There's been a lot spoken. Um, 
if you've got a, 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 a question, a comment uh, that you've been harboring as you've been listening, um, we've got about 10 minutes till the end of our session. We'd welcome them in. No curly questions, please. No curveballs to our wonderful uh, guests. But if there's a comment you'd like to make about what you've heard this afternoon, or, or even to support them in what they have done that we'll do in the future, then um, please, uh, there's a moment for you. Just speak loudly if you've got anything to say. <laughs> it's okay if you haven't, that's fine. Is there someone here? Would you like to say something? Uh, oh, kia ora. Kia ora, uh, kia ora uh, I'm Kenzie. Uh, I'm a Year 13 uh, student. I'm studying uh, New Zealand history at the moment, and we read a lot of uh, No Mally's books on the New Zealand wars. We cite them frequently. And I'd just like to get your insight into, do you think that we should view figures such as Governor Gray primarily as war criminals or primarily as uh, figures of uh, Pākehā colonising history, or should we view them simultaneously as both? Kia ora. Kia ora, Kinsey. Yeah, kia that's kia a, that's um, a nice tough one for you there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Good on you, mate. Gray's an interesting figure because um, up until recently, for Pākehā anyway, he was known as Good Governor Gray this great humanitarian, uh, this progressive figure from, from New Zealand history. Um, but he was also responsible for the invasion of Waikato and um, multiple other acts as well. Um, and so, you know, you look at the, the, the statue of him in Albert Park and the debates around should, should that stay or should it go? Or are there other options? Because with the monuments, another option might be to put an information panel there to contextualise that missing history that describes um, some of the things that, that Gray did, that, that fills in those silences and, and voids. As for whether he would be described as a war criminal, well, I'm, I'm not a war crimes lawyer, so I won't answer that, but I do know that his reputation has, um, under the limelight, it's, it's fallen away quite, quite dramatically. And, um, I mean, it's not to say that, that there weren't aspects, I mean, some of the things that Gray did, like when he was Premier in the late 1870s, he was fairly progressive in Pākehā political terms. But none of that can, can um, override the fact that he, he launched the invasion of Waikato, which was a premeditated war of conquest and invasion without justification. And so as governor of the colony of New Zealand, he launched war on, on his own people, really, because according to the Crown, Māori were subjects of the crown at the time, and so, and, and he used a what I what I've described as his dodgy dossier to justify the unjustifiable, lied about the invasion, um, fabricated an ultimatum to the Waikato tribes that was dated one day after the invasion was launched, so they had no opportunity to respond to that, to save their lives, to save their lands. That, that's just how cynical that invasion was. So I guess um, you know if Gray was to be retrospectively charged with war crimes, I'd have quite a bit to say to that as, as, a, as an expert witness or something to, to that investigation, and I might leave it to the judges to determine whether he was an actual war criminal or not. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much.
I'll ask guys from down Wycliffe and Tarno who think he was just a man with an undiagnosed mental health issue. And, and the sad thing about it is eventually we, we all go grey. But, uh, you know, he's part of our history. It, it's all in the mix. You know, um, as we angle towards a conclusion, we've got about five, three or four minutes left. Um, uh, another question over here. Yeah. Hope it's as, hope it's as brainy as that last one. Come on yeah, in. Yeah, I think there might even be two of us. Somewhere. Yeah. That's lovely. Uh, um, I just had a quick question about the, um, the methodology of, like, is it an embodied methodology? Is that what you use when you're going onto the battlefield? I'm just wondering if you could describe a little bit about how that works and, um, you know, and whether you can do that with contemporary events and, and, and that sort of thing as well. It just sounds very interesting, so. Yeah. Kia ora. Um, thank you. I can talk about eth ethnography and methodology for hours, but I'll keep this um, to 30 seconds. So, yes, what we do, it is an embodied um, methodology. So, as we go into the battlefields, um, and we talk to descendants afterwards, but as we go into the battlefields, we, we, have, we have karakia that we take in with us because a lot of these are wahitapu, they're our tupuna in those spaces. So we have karakia that we do. We, I've harvested um, from the south coast of, of Wellington kohatu stones that we take with us that we leave as gifts for the tupuna. Um, so we always take, take it, something in with us that we leave behind. Um, as when we go into the fields, we, we have voice recorders, we record absolutely everything, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we touch, and, and particularly what we feel. And then later we go away, we write up very extensive field notes, we transcribe what we've done in the field, we're taking photographs, we're taking videos, and then, um, and then later we will be talking to, to the descendants of those. And what we do is we, we pull that into a story, into a narrative, that we are part of the narrative by virtue of going into those spaces, we become part of the story, not just because we, many of us um, on the team had tupuna who have died there, but because we're going back in there and we, we're retelling those stories and recrafting them. Um, so, yes, it is embodied in that sense. So, kia ora, thank you. That was a good question. Kia ora. Um, Lorraine um, Grace from Ngāti Tūrangi, Tūwharatō. Um, you were talking about sort of war memories. For me, um, my grandmother and then coming down to me were kaitiaki, for two ahus, which were in Turangi. Have you heard about them? They were set up. Uh, do you know what it is even? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, or for everyone else, their um, Turangi was in the centre of the North Island, so therefore it was like the hub to the wheel, and everywhere from there led to um, Rotorua. The, the tracks went somewhere. And the two ahus were man-made hills, and there were seven of them, and they were pre-European, and they were made because the travellers travelling back home, the bodies were too heavy, so they um, buried them in the two ahus so that um, they could come back a few years later and take the bones home. Now, Ngāti Turangi went... Oh, when it became um, a power station, the bulldozers came out and started bulldozing them down. Mm. 
my grandmother was able to save four of them. Um, I don't even know how we preserved them now, but once, for example, the area was the site of the Ngāti Tūrangi Tukupā, and also the source of the water for Tūrangi. And my grandmother, father and I were trying to hold on to that land under our own title. But no, no, it had to become government. And we said, the government can do what they like, but don't, because we know the water is precious and it's precious to everyone else. But they insisted on taking it and they said they would take 50 acres and they added a naught on by the time we, they were finished. And I, you know, now I think the place is still in ruins. How does one go? Who do I see to help? Well, you've just done the right thing there, Te Kui. You've just done the right thing because you've spoken of it. And now we, we know. We haven't got time to answer. Now me. Now me. Uh, te whanaunga, nei rā te mihi kia koutou katoa mō tautoko tēnei kōrero, uh, uh, kōrero rangatira. Thank you so much for sharing some time here and listening to these two wonderful people who have committed themselves to the literary process. As I say, we're here at the Auckland Writers Festival celebrating words, celebrating opinions, shaping thoughts. But it's been really a, a great privilege to uh, help facilitate our corridor this afternoon. As you know, there are many more events still to come. But uh, if you'll be gracious enough to allow us to finish off our session for now, I'll pass a quick uh, corridor over to you, Vincent, and to you as well, sis, um, uh, as we bid farewell. Kia ora tēnā, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you all for coming along to the session today. And it, it's been, um, it's great that we're having these conversations to share this history and engage, engage with our past, what's and all. Thank you everyone for coming and being with us today. Each time we have opportunities and forums to tell these stories, we bring our tūpuna back to us. Thank you, they're here with us now. Thank you. And for me, first timer at a writers' festival, it's, uh, it was a heck of a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be, but you guys made it that way. Then up to me, have a great afternoon, and thanks for supporting our co-papa here today. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website writersfestival.co.nz